Hello again, everybody. This is Anthony Harris. Thank you for joining me once again with Looking Back, Moving Forward. You know, my last episode, I was giving you some information and background of my growing up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi during the civil rights days. And I think the last thing I've shared with you was my being arrested at, at the Forest County Courthouse and some things that happened to me later in 1966 when I desegregated an all-white junior high school, WI-10 junior high school there in Hattiesburg. What I want to do today is, in a sort of a chronological uh, order here, I'm going to continue with that, with some of those stories and some of those events that that helped shape my life. And that's one of the things I, I want to do with this, this podcast is look back and move forward. Looking back in the sense that I, I think it's important that we all know these stories and hear these stories and God knows there are so many other people out there with their own stories that need to be told. But this gives me a, a forum or a format to share my stories. And I'm so delighted to do that because the old adage that if you don't learn from the mistakes of the past, you are bound to repeat them in the future. But lots, Many of these things I'm going to share with you and have shared with you in the past, you're not going to find them in the history books. And this, this is something that is so important that we pass along to current generations, future generations, the events and stories that happened in our past in our country and own up to them and acknowledge that some very terrible things went on in our country and in our in our society and hopefully as people hear about these these stories and events um, they will be more prepared to avoid making those mistakes again so i want to pick up with after leaving ninth grade i went to uh, an all-white high school sh blair high school and the reason i did this was was part of the continuation of knocking down the Jim Crow walls and getting rid of school segregation, doing my part in trying to do that, because that was an extension of my involvement in the civil rights movement. So at that time, Blair High School was was a high school, 10th, 11th, and 12th, and that was a black high school called Rowan High School that was also 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. And that was a, a quite an interesting experience for me because it, there, at, at Tim's junior high, my eighth and ninth grade year, there were just a handful of black students. There maybe six or seven in all, if that many. But when I went to Rowan, to S.H. Blair High School, there were a few more black students who came to that school. And I'll give you uh, some of the reasons for that in just a moment. But one of the things that really stood out for me in, in my years there at at S.H. Blair High School, and one in particular that really taught me a lesson. And I want to share that lesson with you. And it has to do with um, believing in yourself and not allowing other people's beliefs about you to, de to define you. And that's such an important lesson to learn, not only when it comes to issues of race, but just being, being in this world, being, being, in your, being who you are. Just don't let people define you. You define yourself. The story I want to share with you, this was probably the 10th grade or 11th grade there at S.H. Blair High School. And my, I was in an English class, and the teacher gave, an gave everybody an assignment to write a poem, an original poem, which I thought was, was pretty challenging and probably very useful. It, allowed, it required us to use our skills of creativity and as well as our uh, skills in writing. And I dutifully completed the assignment. And when we went back to school, the next, whenever the next day was, and the teacher said, okay, boys and girls, what we're going to do today is we're going to go outside. We're going to 
sit under a tree and it's a beautiful day outside and and bring your poems with you. I want you to read your poems. So when it came time for me to stand and read my poem, the title of my poem was KKK. Not the Ku Klux Klan, but Kennedy King Kennedy. It was my way of paying homage to the life and legacy of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Robert Kennedy. And I put a lot of work into that poem. It was definitely something that came from my heart because, as we all know, John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King were heroes in the black community. And they were not perfect, but they were certainly heroes to, to black people in the South in particular. As I rose to read my poem, I had a few butterflies, I'm sure, and I began to read from my paper. I finished it. The teacher after class told me, you didn't write that poem. You plagiarized it. And at the time, I didn't know what plagiarized meant. She said, you copied it from someplace else. That's not an original poem. You did not write that yourself. And I, it was almost impossible to convince her. And, and I did my best to convince her that that was an original poem. It came out of my head and my heart. It didn't come from any other source. It came from my heart and my mind. And that's that was my way of paying homage to those three, three great men. She refused to believe it. In her mind, a black kid should not be that creative. A black kid should not measure up to the high standards that she had set for that class in terms of creativity and producing good good papers and so forth and good grammar. And I did. And she did not want to give me credit for that. And it was an example of how she, because of her bigotry, because of her racism, and her low expectations of me. And that was the main thing. She had such low expectations of me as a black student, believing that black students could never, ever uh, compete with white students academically, could not measure up and match or even exceed the academic performance of, of white students. But I did. And even though she didn't believe I wrote it, I know I wrote it. And I felt good that I had completed, completed the assignment. I'm not sure what grade she assigned me, but I did the assignment. And again, the point that I wanted to make about that is I didn't allow her low expectations of me and her doubts about me define me. I knew I had written it, and that's a lesson for all of us. There are people who many times will court your, your moments where you might have some self-doubt. They may court your um, indecision. But I, I tell people, don't let that happen. I knew what I did. If you have done something and someone tries to discount it or say it's not that important or it's not that good, don't buy into that. That's just a bunch of baloney. And people... Many times who are trying to do that to you is because they, they are feeling inadequate themselves. And they, they try to, instead of elevating themselves up to your level, they try to bring you down to their level. So don't buy into that. And I certainly didn't buy into it. At any rate, I did graduate uh, from high school, didn't graduate from S.H. Uh, Blair I went to Rowan High School, the all-black high school, in 1970. 
And the reason I went there was because the school desegregation plan that the city officials and the school district had come up with because they were under a court order to, the term they used at that time was to achieve racial balance in the school system. What was going on on the freedom of choice program was that a number of black kids were choosing to go to white schools, but the reverse was not happening. Not very many white students were opting to go to black schools. So there remained that racial imbalance in the school system. The white schools stayed predominantly white and uh, the black schools stayed predominantly black and the white schools became a little bit more diverse. Well, uh, Rowan was a, was a treat for me. Let me tell you, I had gone to school at, at white schools from eighth grade through 11th grade. And it was just a treat for me to go to this all black high school. I mean, it has such a, a rich history in, in terms of academics and music and athletics. And it was just a, a great place for me to be. And, and the reason I, I, I went there is because this new desegregation plan required everybody to go to the high school that was nearest their home. And Rowan High School was probably four or five blocks from my house, so it made sense for me to go to that school. A number of black students who lived near the white high school ended up going to that school. And my senior year at Rowan, there was one white student in the entire uh, school, one white kid who opted to go to, well, it really wasn't an option. He lived close enough to Rowan. That's where he had to go. And we had one other uh, non-black student there. A Hispanic young lady, don't remember her name, but she was she was a good student there. Anyway, that was that was the the, the plan the to balance the racially balance the school system. And uh, and, and this is when black students were starting to more and more black students were going to black. But my senior year at at Rowan was just as I said, just a delight. I, I just had such a good time. I was in the band and took some really good courses, had some really good teachers, and got a chance to hang out and make friends with, with people I had, hadn't seen probably since the fifth or sixth grade because we went to different schools. But it was just a real joy for me to be at that school. Now, Rowan was the last, my class of Rowan High School in 1971 was the last class to graduate from Rowan High School. The last one in 1971, because the following year, the schools merged. The black high school and the white high school merged, and they changed the name of the school to Hattiesburg High School. Again, the previous name for the white school was S.H. Blair High School, and the black high school was L.J. Rowan, R-O-W-A-N, L.J. Rowan High School. And after that happened, I, I often say that that was the, the year, 1971-72, is when we began to see such a, a shift in how society, how teachers, how administrators, how they regarded young black men. And here's the best example I can give you of what I'm trying to say here. We had young black men in high school who had a relationship with black educators, particularly black male teachers. And not just the black male teachers, but there were some, some women uh, teachers at that school who, who were really on the job and they were pretty stern and, and that was needed many times. 
But I think about someone who was quite outstanding and just quite remarkable, was the head football coach at Rowan High School, had been coached there for many years. In fact, he was the winningest high school football coach in the entire state of Mississippi, bar none. No, no high school coach had won as many ball games as Coach Ed Steele had. Now, when they merged these two schools, guess what happened to Ed Steele? Did he become the head football coach at this new school? No, no way. He became director of recreation. He was relegated to a lesser position with fewer responsibilities and fewer, fewer opportunities to interact with young black men. So at this predominantly white high school, when young black men tried to push the envelope, when they were at the black high school, Ed Steele and Mr. Berger, the principal, and others could get in that young man's face and tell him in no uncertain term, look, boy, you better sit your behind down. If you don't, I'm going to tell your dad what you've been doing, and, and he's going to get on you too. So he had a way of, of talking to these young men and got their attention so they knew to go sit down and do just what Ed Steele and N.R. Berger and Prop Furby and, and these other black men and, and Mrs. Chambers and others who, who were very influential in their lives. When they went to Hattiesburg High School, Ed Steele wasn't there. Mr. Winters, our band director, wasn't. He was the assistant director. Mr. Berger wasn't there. He stayed at the 10th grade and became an attendance center. And every time these young black men would try to push the envelope, these white educators didn't know what to do. They didn't know, they didn't know how to respond to our young black men. And the way they responded to them was either they were indifferent, they just didn't care, or they went to the opposite extreme of immediately sending them to the office, sending them to get into trouble, to get written up, go to the assistant principal's office, that sort of thing. When just a year or two ago, that would not have happened because Ed Steele and these other men, they had a relationship with these guys. They lived in the same community and probably went to the same church with many of them, and, and they had a way of relating to these young men, which disappeared when these, these men, their visibility, their viability, all kind of disappeared. And I've always believed that that was intentional, that when the schools, and I don't say integrated, but when they were desegregated, um, the, the people still in charge of, of education were, were still white. The school board was, was mostly white, I'm sure, and the, the, the superintendent was white. And even after these, this merger of these two high schools, there were no black people in leadership positions. They were all, all of the principals and all of the board members, the superintendent and so forth, were, they were still controlling everything that was going on. So I, 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 look at that period of 71, 72, and moving forward from there as a period where we actually saw some of our young black men, and the term I use, and I don't mean to be critical here, is they started spiraling, started spiraling downward because there was nobody there to, to tell them, no, you can't cross this line. You can't say that. You can't do that. You need to stop acting the way you're acting. You need to stop doing what you're doing. You need to open that book. And they would do it. 
But now at this other school, the white educators either were not prepared or didn't, know, didn't have the skills, didn't have the wherewithal to relate to these young men in a way that they would not cross that line. And what happened, unfortunately, I think, my theory is that some of these young men just started pushing the envelope more and more, either getting sent to the principal's office or being ignored. And in either case, we, we saw what so-called integration did to our schools. And it was not very, I mean, we're still paying for that. The legacy of that still continues, along with other issues. It wasn't just what was going on in the schools, and the pervasiveness of, of racism and, and bigotry and white supremacy, all those things were still present back in that time. That was, that was an interesting time for me, and I'm going to share one more story with you before we move on to something else here. And that is when I graduated from high school in, in 1971, I had an opportunity to fly to Chicago, Illinois, to visit with my dear cousin, Barb. Barb was a sweet woman. I just enjoyed her company, and she was she had, she graduated from uh, Rowan High School. It may have been Royal Street at that time, and she was Miss Rowan or Miss Royal Street back in the early '60s. And she moved to Chicago, and she was somebody we we loved spending time with. So I had an opportunity after high school to go up and visit with her and her husband and her her family. She had two kids at the time, John and Leslie, and. It was just something I look forward to, just being being there in that in Chicago, getting away from Mississippi. At any rate, one of the when I was ready to return to Hattiesburg, I, they took me to the airport O'Hare to get on the plane to take my flight back to Jackson, Mississippi, and I was going to my mom was going to meet me at the airport and bring me back to Hattiesburg. As I got on the plane. Uh, some security officers came over and asked me, they showed their badges, their credentials, asked me to get up out of my seat and to follow them. And I'm thinking, why are they asking me to unbuckle my seatbelt and go with them? I was compliant. I didn't ask any questions. I said, you know, they're in charge, <laughs> you know, they're police. Maybe they know, know something I don't know. So they took me to this this room, and they started to question me. They started to um, look at me and gave me this very inquisitive look. And they wanted to know my background. They wanted to know where I was going and where I had been in Chicago, what was I doing in Chicago, all those sorts of things, just a real intense interrogation. And that went on for a while. And the main thing that I was concerned with was am I going to get my flight? Because I was homesick. I was ready to go back to Mississippi, enjoy Chicago, but I was ready to get back home. And my, my fear was that I was going to miss my flight and have to delay going back home. Well, after a while, I asked the gentleman, why were they asking me these questions? What was it about me that caused them to take me from my seat in the, in, on the plane and go with them? And they said, you fit the profile of a hijacker. Yes, you fit the profile of a hijacker. I said, well, if you don't mind my asking, what is it about my profile? What is it about me that fits the profile of a hijacker? They say, you have this big afro and your skin tone is, you could be a Cuban. And 
we just have to check you out and make sure you're not planning to hijack a plane to Cuba. And at that time, there was a rash of hijackings to Cuba by you know, a number of people. But little did he know, I had no interest in had no desire, had no plan to hijack a plane. So I said, I was homesick. I was ready to get back home, hang out with my friends. I love Chicago, as I said, and my, and my cousin and her family. But I was ready to go. And that's an early example of what I call FWB. And that is flying while black. And that was just one, one of those occasions where I just had to, uh, there was nothing I could do. Uh, who was I? I was probably 17, 18 years old at the time, just graduated from high school and, and feeling that I had to obey these officers. But it wasn't that I was doing anything to cause them to think about me as a, as a, a potential hijacker. And that's the thing that probably angered me more after I thought about it. I was not doing anything. I was just sitting in my seat. And it was nothing about, about my behavior that would lead them to believe that I was a risk, that I was somebody who, who, would, who might hijack a plane. It was my status. It was the fact that I had an Afro and my skin color. I couldn't do anything about either one of those. And that's where the, in my view, where, where the racism and the bigotry comes in, is that if I were being fidgety, if I were doing something that caused people to have doubts about my, uh, about what I was doing, yeah, you're supposed to go and check me out. But because I fit a profile, I'm not doing anything to anybody, but I just happen to have certain physical characteristics that I can't do anything about that you believe fits the profile of a hijacker. And I was very disturbed by that. As I got home, I was relieved that I was finally back in, in Mississippi, if you can believe that, and back in in Hattiesburg to be with my friends and so forth. And that, that was, and that was a, 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 a time that, again, I, I learned a lot about myself and, and, and another lesson about discrimination and, and profiling. I, I tell people that's one of the early examples, as I said earlier, of flying while, flying while black. Well, I'm going to stop right now and uh, invite you to listen again next time. I'm not sure which number episode that will be, but I'm going to continue with this chronology. I have some more interesting stories to tell you, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that. Again, I want to make sure you understand the reason I'm sharing these stories, and everybody has a story to tell, and I encourage you to share your stories with, the, with anybody and everybody who's willing to listen to you. You don't have to do a podcast. You don't have to make a speech, but if you want to do that, that's fine as well. I think it's so important for those of us who've had these experiences and went through these things, it's important for us to share our stories with others with the purposes of informing and educating people about things that happened in the past so that the lessons we, the, that we can learn from the past, we have to make sure we apply those in the future and in the present time. So that's going to be it. I have an interview coming up. I promise you that I had an interview coming up, and we will do that one with Hezekiah Watkins and Andrew Ledwell co-authors of a very fine book called Pushing Forward. Uh, Mr. Watkins was the earliest, uh, not earliest, but the youngest uh, person to be arrested in the Freedom Rides. He was a Freedom Rider 
back in those days, and he's, he's written a book about that, and I'm going to have him on to talk about that. Well, that's it for this time, my friends. Please uh, drop me a line. Let me know what you think. If you have some comments, questions, either agree or disagree with me, uh, aharris007 at yahoo.com, aharris007 at yahoo.com. And until next time, you guys stay safe. Bye.